you know, VMware is essentially the Switzerland of, of the multi-cloud space, right? We don't have our own public cloud. Instead, we partner with everyone. And so I think because of that, we can uniquely offer these cross-cloud capabilities so that customers can get that sort of consistency that they're looking for. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we talk with Kit Colbert, VP and CTO of VMware Cloud. Kit's an executive who knows about cloud technology inside and out. He started at VMware fresh out of college almost two decades ago, and since then he served as a developer, an architect, a general manager, and now a cloud CTO. His early claim to fame is the magic around vMotion, but he's gone on to do so much more since. And today he's here with us to share the nitty gritty of cloud architecture, cloud portability, the cost of cloud, along with a sprinkling of Kubernetes and vSphere. We cover so much. So please buckle up. This one's really going to test your technicals. Welcome, Kit. Great to have you join us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So um, can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? Yeah. So my current role is CTO for VMware Cloud at VMware. VMware Cloud is essentially sort of an umbrella offering that that we have that encompasses a lot of our different infrastructure offerings, management offerings, some stuff in security, modern applications. So there's a whole bunch of different things happening there. And VMware Cloud is about really bringing that all together to create a unique and differentiated experience for our customers. So from a career perspective then, how did you end up here? Yeah, it's been a pretty interesting ride. I've actually been at VMware now for about 18 years. I wow. think it's, it's been quite a while. You joined as a child, clearly. Basically, that's <laughs> always the joke. Like, oh, you joined straight out of high school. But uh, I came straight out of college, actually. So I did my college studies in computer science, and I was really, really intrigued and enamored with low-level systems, operating systems specifically. And so when I was graduating or, you know, my senior year, I was looking around to say, okay, like, what, where is the interesting stuff happening? And I actually had interned at VMware the previous summer, <clears throat> so I knew there. But I looked at other places as well, like Google and so forth. But, um, you know, what was happening at VMware, the work they were doing to the ESX kernel, the, the, the VM kernel, was super, super interesting to me. So uh, that's, what, that's what got me to come over. Super smart people, really interesting work. So I started off as a developer working on ESX, and essentially over the last 18 years, I've I've kind of grown in my role, moved from a developer to a technical lead slash architect to eventually a CTO, but also moved around within the company, which is something I think I've also just been very fortunate. VMware is a great company with a great breadth of of work and, and products. So I moved from ESX, went to focus on, well, so within ESX, focus on vMotion and storage vMotion for a few years, helped to create what is now vRealize Operations, so sort of operations management product. I went over to end user computing and did a bunch of work there. But it was during that time that I started seeing everything happening with containers and cloud native architectures and sort of the rise of that. So that's what got me interested in modern applications. And so we started the cloud native business unit, which is now the what we call the modern applications business unit uh, within VMware. 
and eventually moved back to focus, start focusing on infrastructure. So for the uh, cloud platform business unit, and that kind of then evolved to where I am now. <laughs> so it's been it's been a really fun ride, like doing a bunch of different things. But I've been very fortunate to be able to participate in those and, and learn a lot from it. Wow. So normally we ask, what was your first job in IT and how did you end up here? But I think, that, you know, you're still in your first job in IT, right? Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like, I don't think LinkedIn ever quite supported this or maybe they do now, but it was like, I've had kind of one job, but I've also had many jobs. Yeah. It's a bit of both. I think it's been interesting. You talk about your first job in IT, like, you know, when I first started working uh, as a developer, I was very internally focused, right? I didn't really talk to customers as much, uh, but it was actually... When I started working on vMotion, because it's such a customer-visible technology and because of the fact that it's very sensitive to overall system performance. Mm. And so anytime you get some sort of issue happening, it oftentimes exposes itself as a vMotion problem. And so I would get called in to, to help with customers. And so that gave me a lot of the customer exposure that I hadn't had before. So that kind of Kind of feels to me like my first job in IT. Yeah, wow. Okay. So, so very valid question. Looking back then, what, what do you think has been your career-defining moment? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say probably some of my work on vMotion, honestly. <laughs> it kind of helped make my career within VMware, I think. Both for good reasons and not necessarily for bad reasons per se, but it's kind of like hard to break out of the mold. Yeah, yeah. For the longest time, I was always that vMotion guy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, even years later, people still said, hey, you're the vMotion guy. I'm like, I've done other things. <laughs> but well, when, you know, when you're known for the magic, then that's everyone wants that trick, right? Exactly. Fabulous. So look, let's, um, let's move into our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. Okay, so um, so in in our deep dive, we, we want to try to explore a whole bunch of different topics with you today, Kit. And you know, I'd, the place I'd really like to start, if if it's okay, is you know. So I joined VMware four years ago, and before I joined, I kind of thought I knew what VMware was about. And since joining, oh my goodness, I found out so much more. And then we keep acquiring and different things keep happening. And so most of the conversations I have start with, oh, don't think of us for vSphere and the hypervisor and that thing. Yeah, we do all of these other things. However, I think last year was a pretty momentous year for us with the hypervisor. And and obviously you having um, worked so closely on that huge innovation around vMotion What's your take on the innovation that we've brought in vSphere 7 and maybe what you think the highlights are for you as to yeah. what, how that's changing the game? Absolutely. And to your initial point there, you're absolutely right. I think one of the biggest, both maybe challenge and opportunity we have as a company is just educating everyone that we do a lot more than just core virtualization, you know? And you're right, it's hard even as an employee to keep up with the torrid pace of uh, change there. But to your point, there has been a bit of a renaissance in terms of the innovation happening at the hypervisor level. I think for a number of years, it was kind of just this assumed view that, hey, we had done a bunch of great stuff, but that was kind of done. And, and now it's time to move on to the, these different areas. But I think, you know, one of my big realizations and the reason I came back to the vSphere team after so many years away was that when I was doing the cloud native business unit, the original strategy was, hey, let's do something very different, something separate from vSphere. But what I realized was that there's so much great technology there in vSphere. If we can just evolve it in a way that can support these modern apps, we can do some really, really powerful things. 
And so we've been hard at work. And vSphere 7, I think, is sort of the first crop of, of those changes coming out. There's a lot more coming down the pike. But let's talk about vSphere 7, and let's also talk about sort of some of the future-facing things. So probably for me, one of the biggest things that we did in vSphere 7 was uh, something that we called Project Pacific, uh, the integration of Kubernetes with vSphere. So again, I talked about this before, you know, when I originally was looking at this problem of how do we best support modern apps and embrace technologies like Kubernetes, I thought we had to do that outside of vSphere. But vSphere brings a whole bunch of amazing capabilities, like we all know, things like vMotion and DRS and HA and the security that's built into it, uh, the resource management capabilities. So if we could somehow leverage that and parlay that into support within Kubernetes, that'd be something really, really powerful. And so concretely what we did was made it such that each ESX cluster as a vSphere 7.0 is now simultaneously a Kubernetes cluster. And so the power of that is that each of these ESX clusters now has a Kubernetes API and that we've started to expose services via that Kubernetes API. So we have network services, storage services, we have a container registry service, a VM service. So here's what's kind of interesting. As people are modernizing their applications, as they're creating CI, CD pipelines, as they're doing all these things, oftentimes they're using Kubernetes as a foundation for that, that what they're sort of automating on top of and orchestrating. And now that Kubernetes abstraction is just part of vSphere. And so the really cool thing there is that regardless of whether you're managing a traditional VM or a more modern containerized application or something serverless, these all start to look the same in the sense that you can manage them through the Kubernetes API. And so this is really a, a dramatic shift in terms of enabling uh, modernization of existing applications. So we're really just scratching the surface in terms of what we're doing there with Kubernetes. This is kind of the first one um, or the first part of it. But what we're going to be doing is adding a whole bunch of additional services exposed via Kubernetes. Wow. Okay. So I, I think this is actually the first time we've mentioned Kubernetes on, other than by saying, oh, and we must talk about Kubernetes. That's the first time we've really talked about it at all. And wow, what a way to, uh, to start that part of the conversation. So how big a deal do you think Kubernetes is then for VMware? If you go, kind of go back a few years... I think it was predicted as our doom. So what are your thoughts there, if uh, yeah. if it may be so bold? Yeah, of course. You're right. I mean, one of the reasons, going back to my sort of personal history, I was in the, our end-user computing group, and we had just completed the acquisition of AirWatch and uh, CTO for that business unit. And so we had a whole bunch of plans. It was a whole bunch of like really important work. But to your point, I saw what was happening in the cloud-native space. I saw the rise of Docker. And containers and Kubernetes, uh, just I think that was 2014 ish when they first came out. So it was very, very early on. And it wasn't actually clear at the time which one would win Kubernetes, Mesos, Docker, et cetera. But it was clear to me that this is potentially an existential problem for VMware, right? And, and to your point, Matthew, like you saw that from the pundits and <laughs> the journalists and everyone saying, oh, VMware's doomed, you know? But I think the strategy that we took was not to fight it, right, but to embrace it. And you know, you're kind of seeing yeah, that with, very bold. with what we're doing here with vSphere Seven. And by the way, you know, it's not just vSphere Seven. I mean, uh, we haven't even touched upon all the things we're doing in the Tanzu portfolio, which very much as well rallies around Kubernetes. Now, taking a step back and looking at it from a customer point of view for a second, Kubernetes has clearly won, quote unquote, the container orchestration wars, as they were, right? It's come out as a standard. And 
I think it's a great technology. It's a very powerful technology, but it's also a little bit of a complex technology. And so customers want to use it in the sense that it's a standard infrastructure abstraction and container orchestration, but they don't want to have to like do a ton of work on it. They'd like to be able to get it and take it and start using it, right? So this notion of us building it in, I think is really, really powerful for them. The other part is that a lot of people tend to think of Kubernetes as being sort of a developer-oriented technology. I would say that it's not really. I would say that developers actually don't even want Kubernetes. They actually want higher-level abstractions. You know, They want to just be able to check their code in and get it to run. They don't want to deal with infrastructure at all. So what we're doing is really, from a VMware standpoint, leveraging Kubernetes as a standard framework, as a, a standard API, if you will, down to the infrastructure, and then building a whole bunch of integrated functionality on top of that. And so the end result for customers is that it's just a great experience and seamless experience. And yes, Kubernetes is there under the covers, and you can absolutely interact with it if you want to. But you also don't have to. You don't need to get into the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, so I was reading your um, your recent blog around, uh, actually around Tanzu, where, where you're saying that, you know, actually, here's a baseline set of tools. We'd love you to use them, but you don't have to use them because we've opened up the API. So I, I think that reinforces your point completely, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, and I think our strategy is very much, when you look at the multi-cloud space, customers need to provision workloads across different clouds. And they want to be able to take advantage of some of the capabilities of each cloud, but they also want some commonality and consistency. You talk about things like security, the, the notion of the secure software supply chain, like where are all these bits that are in your application, where are they coming from? What is their provenance? How do you know that some hacker hasn't gotten in there? It's kind of like the solar winds thing, right? You saw that hack. It's, it's, the hackers actually checked code into their code repository, which then eventually got shipped as part of their normal process. And so that's like a really scary thing for customers. And so what we're really looking at building is this common set of tooling that's a platform out of the box. But to your point is that it's pluggable. Right. I, th I think the old Docker saying is batteries included, but swappable. And so I think that's a really big opportunity for, for us if we look at it from a strategy point of view is that you know VMware is essentially the Switzerland of, of the multi-cloud space, right? We don't have our own public cloud. Instead, we partner with everyone. And so I think because of that, we can uniquely offer these cross-cloud capabilities so that customers can get that sort of consistency that they're looking for. Well, actually, I'm, so I'm kind of glad you went there because... There was a recent report by um, Andreessen Horowitz about the cost of cloud mm -hmm. and the strategies some are taking there. What's your take on that? Yeah, that was a great blog and uh, very eye-opening and caused a, a tremendous amount of, of chatter and discussion on Twitter, Clubhouse, a bunch of different locations. Really, really good discussions. And um, so the, the basic thesis to summarize that blog was that cloud is great when you're starting out. It's fast, it's easy to use, you can get going really quickly, you, you, know, you have all the stuff out of the box, and as a startup, it, it's crazy not to do it, basically, that's the idea. The challenge, though, is that it is quite expensive. They, there's hefty markups there. Companies want to make their profits, right, and public clouds are no different. And if you take the time and effort, and we've seen this with a number of different companies, Dropbox is always offered as an example, but you can repatriate workloads back on-prem, and you can typically, if you do it properly, you can save you know, a decent amount of money, anywhere from 30%, 50%, maybe even 80% in some cases uh, for certain types of workloads. 
And so the point of the blog was like, if you look at the total amount of potential savings there, which would be essentially padding those companies' bottom lines and thereby increasing their market capitalization on the stock market, they estimated there's like, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in potential value there locked up. And so the paradox of it is that it's crazy not to use cloud when you first get started, but it's kind of crazy to keep using cloud once you're mature and have like a mature set of workloads. But the challenge is how do you actually get out of there in the middle of that, like in the middle of the spectrums of crazy, so to speak. And so, you know, that's the challenge. And and, and to be clear, Andreessen was not saying, the Andreessen Horowitz folks were not saying that repatriation is always the right thing or always a good idea. I think a lot of people misunderstood that. They're just saying, look, we have what appears to be this sort of paradox here. And, and they're kind of putting that out there for discussion. So, you know, I think it raised a lot of really good points. But also, I think when you think about it through a VMware lens, our whole point has always been, hey, we want to give you the flexibility using our technologies to be able to move across clouds, whether it's in the public cloud, which public cloud, which region, moving to your on-premises data center, moving to a colo, maybe moving out to an edge location, let's say a retail store, if that's your business, that our platform enables that sort of portability. And so I think that notion is really, really critical for us. And it kind of goes back to that cloud paradox that with the right technologies, you can actually move around that. Although again, I'm not going to say it's like perfect or easy, but it's definitely some core enabling technologies there. Kit, you raise an interesting point because in financial services, and I'm I'm guessing in other industries as well, but particularly in financial services, because that's where I sit, a lot of our customers had very ambitious moonshot. It's all public cloud. We're going to get to the public cloud as fast as we possibly can. And I think through a series of pragmatic discoveries of how easy or not that is, you're now starting to see, we're now starting to see that ambition is still there, but the practicalities of how I get my strategic workload placement is, a bit, is now much more important than just saying everything is in public cloud. The cloud. Does that echo with you? Absolutely. Yeah. And we talked to a lot of folks in the financial services space, and I actually see a wide disparity uh, across them in terms of what their plans are, right? Some people are completely staying on-prem, <laughs> like they want cloud on-prem, you know, and some of them in the U.S., but, you know, I was just uh, just in Germany meeting with some customers, actually met with a financial services customer there, and because of local regulations there and so forth, they're also staying very, very much on-prem. But, you know, then we talked to other ones, and I think there's folks like Capital One, I think has been very publicly vocal about this, moving all in with, you know, something like AWS in the Cap One example. But the thing that we try to talk about is rather than saying, hey, like this one one way is good or bad, I think it's highly dependent on your business and your particular circumstances. It's how do you think about the architecture that you're bringing to bear there? And that irrespective of whether it is on-prem, in the cloud, whatever, how do you better align that architecture so that if you do want to move or something changes, what, what have you, that you can do it, that technology is not the blocker there. And so, you know, you can look across all these different areas. There's things in terms of the application architecture itself and sort of how you're building out microservices. What application services are you taking dependency on? Will you take a dependency on some of these higher level services, let's say an AWS DynamoDB 
or Aurora or Redshift, things that are specific to AWS versus maybe going with a um, Databricks, Snowflake, which are multi-cloud services, right? It goes to your DevSecOps technologies and platform. And like I talked about before, this notion of wanting a single way of building and producing your in-house applications, but being able to do that consistently across all locations. That's just a good thing for many reasons. Securities, we talked about compliance, having all the right controls in place. But then also there's the infrastructure side. So how do you want to think about that? Do you really want to go for a consistent infrastructure across all these different locations? And that could be an SDDC type infrastructure. It could be a Kubernetes infrastructure. So we do see a lot of customers saying, hey, I want to standardize on Kubernetes because it does give me that little bit of extra flexibility and mobility. Um, And so again, that goes back to our earlier conversation of why we're building Kubernetes into vSphere. So you can sort of have both. But I think that's the thing we talk a lot about customers with, at least for, for me, is that what does that architecture look like to then allow you to have the flexibility and lack of technical constraints across those decisions? So you've, you've raised another key point. I think it's worth just trying to elaborate on. I think all of our customers want to go faster. So they want their digital transformation. They want their adoption of cloud and what cloud gives them in terms of the, the cost benefits, but also the adjacencies to the new technologies and services. But they, in the main, they struggle. And they don't struggle because of technical reasons. They struggle for very many other reasons. And I wondered if you've got an opinion on what those other reasons might be that slow them down, that block them. I'd just be interested in your view in that. Yeah, no, sorry I'm laughing about it. It's um, So just to expand on my story, my customer story I just mentioned, we've actually embarked on a, a video series that we're creating talking, it's called tentatively called Time for Change. We'll see if that sticks or not. But the basic idea of it, to your point, is that what I've noticed as I've talked with customers is that, yeah, the technology changes, They can be hard and and so forth, but they're never quite as hard as the people, process, and organizational changes that that need to happen, the culture changes, right? And the challenge is, as technologists, we tend not to think about those problems. We we think, oh, we geek out and want to get the architecture right and all that sort of stuff, which is important, don't get me wrong. But to your point, Brian, like the biggest challenge that you find are these non-technical challenges. And so the video series is very much talking about that and trying to understand how people move through these these sorts of issues. So uh, the customer that I met with in uh, Germany, we were, I was out there to actually interview them about the change. And so they actually went through uh, a pretty big change. They're, they're, I don't know, 50-year-old company, financial services, you know, already very digitized, but also very sort of traditional, traditional sort of waterfall model. Like they couldn't, they didn't have the agility. And so the, the really big transformation for them was building in that agility. So instead of moving in like months or years, they can move in like days or even hours. And, you know, it turned out they got a lot of these things in place just in time for COVID as it hit in March of last year. And that was kind of the proof point that they said, they're like, hey, we were able to turn on a dime. And it's because of all these investments we put in the previous two to three years. But elaborating on that a little bit, I thought thought their story was super interesting because, you know, you, you see this problem happen where, Everyone gets, I think, well, okay, usually everyone gets at a high level, this is a good thing, you know, but but then the, people might say, well, but for my specific job or role, how does this affect me? And so what you get is misaligned incentives, that people might not be willing to, to make that change or just to be obstructionist, right? That 
people might go with you when, when you're looking face to face, but then kind of behind your back, escalate and try to work around you and, you know, slow things down. So you, you naturally get a lot of that. I thought the really interesting thing that, that these folks did was that the, the person driving the change, well, uh, first of all, he had CEO level buy-in. The CEO was fully behind him. And like the CEO publicly said, like, if you got a problem with any of this, go talk to this guy. Don't talk to me. If you talk to me, I'm just going to tell you to talk to him. So like there was no escalation above this person. This person, like the buck stopped there, so to speak, right? And then you kind of had that backstop. But then they actually did a great job of just engaging with the employees and being very upfront about it and being very open and saying, yeah, we don't have all the answers. Here's where we're going, but we need your help. And so rather than kind of handing them from on high some, you know, perfect plan, they said, hey, let's create this together. You know, it takes a while to mobilize that, right? But they said it really paid dividends because people started feeling like they're a part of the process rather than just being dictated to. Uh, So this is a a couple of quick examples, but that notion of culture change is extraordinarily difficult and will be by far the hardest part about any sort of transformation. So I think, you know, one of the real opportunities and listening to some of, some of the previous podcasts here as well, is I think having more of those conversations in the open, really bringing that out, talking about it, and not, not just about great success stories, but also what went wrong, right? What do people learn? Because I think that's where the real opportunity is for us as a community to come together to help each other. Last question for me on, the, on this, on, on, in this space. 18 years at VMware, you've seen lots of change in your time at VMware. You personally, what were the moments that really mattered to you at, in that 18-year journey? <sighs> That's a good question. For me personally, it's kind of interesting, right? I really get into whatever I'm working on. And so for me, <laughs> going back to the concept of change, it's like that they, when the opportunity rears its head, and then like taking that opportunity is always a tough one for me because I kind of know in my head, like for instance, I was, I was, when I first started on vMotion, I was, <laughs> this sounds crazy, but I was literally the only person working on it. There was no one else in the company. I was like a, it was like a one-man army, so to speak. And so I slowly built up a team, a very cross-functional team of awesome people. We created storage vMotion. So that was happening for like four years and you know we were in a good spot. So then this opportunity came to work on a performance management tool which eventually would become V-Realize Operations, but at the time was just an idea. And you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is, a, this is a great opportunity. I should really take it. But, like, my, but then I'm also kind of like, well, but V-Motion is so important. And so like, those sorts of inflection points, I think for me, always stand out. The, the debate around it in my own mind. And then the shift for me. like When I moved from V-Motion to this operations management tool at the time, just like the, the mindset stuff was really big for me. So I remember like just, you know, being in this learning mode and, and really just really just loving it, right? And like similarly, I think I think with the cloud native space, it was just like I'm still learning, but like there's just kind of the fire hose at first. And so those are ones that really stand out for me personally, just because it's it's such a I, I love learning. I love kind of putting myself in these <laughs> uncomfortable new positions. And so uh, it's it's about challenging yourself. But I think if I look at it from a company point of view. Probably the, the biggest one, uh, the two biggest ones were our shifts, our kind of attempts at cloud, right? And we started with things like vCloud Air, which which was good, but not quite right for us and for our strategy. I think now what we're doing with VMware Cloud and AWS and some of the other ones, the other hyperscaler partnerships make perfect sense. And then the second part being um, everything we're doing in the container, cloud native, and modern app space. I think those are fundamental shifts. And so, you know, Matthew, getting back to what you mentioned before about how do people conceptualize VMware, I think we're on this journey 
if we're successful, people will think very differently of us. They will not think of us as just a virtualization company. They'll think of us as a multi-cloud modern application company. And so that's, I think, really the opportunity for us. And, and so that's what excites me, even after 18 years, is that, hey, like we are reinventing the company and, and we're doing so, you know, taking all this great technology we have, but also innovating on top of it. I know you just finished there saying we'd be thought of as not just the virtualization VM, um, a vSphere company, but with the with version 7 and the stuff that you're working on now, I know you mentioned Pacific, which is obviously massive. What else is going on there that you, you kind of think is going to change things? Well, there's a ton of innovation happening. I know I, I, we mentioned Pacific and we got off on all the, the modern app stuff, uh, which is super important, but thank you for bringing it back. So, you know, as I mentioned, vSphere is really going through a renaissance and we're both innovating with like crazy new stuff, but also just like fixing a lot of the basic stuff. Like one thing that is really important for customers is <laughs> just lifecycle management. How do we help do better lifecycle management of uh, vSphere at scale and really bringing out some more powerful tools there? And so there's a bunch of work we did with Seven, more work coming after that. Things like VMware Cloud Foundation, which is like bringing together a lot of these different things. And so there's a lot of integrated lifecycle management capability there as well. Things on the security side, increasing the security around trusted hosts and key stores and all these other things that we're enabling to be able to have that root of trust in the infrastructure. But then, you know, we're also innovating on the hardware side as well. As new hardware innovations come out, we want to be able to take advantage of them. And so one area that we're really excited about is the advent of uh, the SmartNIC. Now, the SmartNIC has kind of been around in various shapes and sizes for decades, I think. And they've always tried to do different things. But what the, the modern SmartNIC is really a general purpose processor, usually an ARM processor, um, on a NIC. And so well, why would you do this? Well, th there's actually numerous use cases. So the, the most basic one is saying, hey, we can actually move some of our computation that used to happen on the x86 processor on the motherboard over to the NIC. And so you could do much better uh, network processing, much faster, get 100G type, type uh, speed, as well as enhanced security. We can now do security and do all the security functions, firewall, et cetera, on the NIC itself in line you know, with packet processing. But what really gets exciting is that we can actually run ESX on that NIC now. And so what you're going to see is, and this is called Project Monterey, we announced it last year at VMworld, and what, what you're going to see is that really ESX, a single ESX server, will now become a bit of a distributed system in the sense that there'll be two instances of ESX running on there, that you'll have one on the smart NIC and you'll have one on the x86 side like normal. And so the idea being is we can move pretty much all of the host management, all of you know the storage, I.O. processing, network processing, et cetera, off the x86 side onto the smart NIC. And so that's good, as I mentioned, for, for performance and security reasons, but also for management reasons as well. We can fundamentally simplify ESX management, enhance the lifecycle management we just talked about, as well as be able to support bare metal workloads. So in this notion that ESX would be on the smart NIC, but you might have a bare metal Windows or Linux running on the x86 side, but we can still manage it like kind of like a VM. I mean, you, you couldn't vMotion it because it's you know got a whole bunch of compute state that we don't have access to, but we can control the storage and the networking and still provide that level of virtualization and security, even for bare metal workloads. So this is a pretty foundational transformation of, of our underlying hypervisor architecture. And we think this will be 
a really powerful go-forward approach. You're not going to see it everywhere initially. It'll just be for sort of high-end systems when it first comes out. But as you know, the price of smart NICs come down, as that architecture gets standardized, it's going to become more and more of a standard way that hypervisors will operate. Wow. Okay. So that and that one's Monterey, right? That's Monterey. Yeah. Okay. I know we got all these names, Pacific and Monterey. It's funny because in the UK, no, no, that, get, those are good things. You sorry, don't get sorry, things right. like you know Project Sutton Coalfield or. You know, Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> no offence to anyone that lives in Leeds, Project Leeds. You know, you don't get them. It just doesn't resonate, does it, like Monterey and Pacific? No, no. There's, there's a certain cachet about them, right? Yeah. Um, okay, uh, so we want to post some links in our show notes kit, so um, we'll get a few of those from you, some required reading. Um, let's, um, in the interest of time, let's move on. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. Okay, so this is our crystal ball section, and the question is, what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2021 and beyond, and how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? So much pressure. <laughs> game-changing technologies, huh? Well, I'm an optimist, so I'm thinking about what could help financial services and just generally companies producing applications. I think one of the areas I've become really excited about is that it goes back to the DevSecOps platform, but it's kind of a mindset that you bring to it, and we're, we've termed it the modern least privilege. So there's this notion historically of least privilege as being that's the way you design systems. You only give something as much access as it needs and, and no more. But when you start thinking about that from a DevSecOps perspective, like what does that mean? And so part of it is like, how do you drive more automation? The notion of the three R's, right? Repave, rotate, and repair. This notion of no instance uh, of an application running out on your infrastructure should be that long-lived, right? The notion of least privilege means you keep it running for as short a time as absolutely necessary. If you find a vulnerability, the least privilege would be how do you drive towards zero the amount of time before you're aware of that vulnerability and when that vulnerability is fixed in your environment. Least privilege goes to how do you ensure that credentials are rotated frequently, that ideally you have no long-lived shared secrets, but instead you can have an ephemeral identity based off of some attributes or characteristics of that application that can be used to gain access. Least privilege goes toward reducing, actually, the freedoms the developer has, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, so they can't make mistakes, they can't do things on accident. And when you start looking at this pipeline that you can build, you realize that you can start plugging into this thing in amazing ways. Like, take security, like you look at posture analysis, you're looking at what's happening out in your production environment. You might find there's like some sort of security issue or vulnerability and you can have the software automatically kick off a repave. That's how, you know, you don't have humans in the loop. But you can also get more advanced than that. If you notice that like the security software has kicked off a repave like three times in a row and it keeps happening, well, probably there's some higher level issue going on. Someone keeps breaking in or, you know, who knows what. And that might, you know, trigger then a human to, to come and look at it. You can look at that from a cost perspective, like start uh, having cost analysis being done, again, in an automated sense and kick off a repave, but maybe to a different cloud or to a different region or maybe go on-prem or what have you, some other change like that. So I think this notion of a, a pipeline and full automation end-to-end, -end, developer checks in the code and then everything just happens. 
and that you can start then plugging in automated systems around that pipeline. I think that's going to be foundational and drive up agility while at the same time driving up uh, security, compliance, and everything else. So I think we have now in the cloud-native space the technologies to do this, but I don't think we've really put it together, both in narrative form like I'm doing here, as well as from a technology standpoint, to really drive this end-to-end. But I think we're so close, and I think the potential there is huge. So that, that for me, would be one of the biggest things happening this year and in the future that will positively (laughs) influence financial services firms. Wow. Yeah, well, you can kind of see that, right? That's a really good prediction. And, And it'd be good to be part of it. Absolutely, yeah. And there's a ton of work that we're doing to help realize that. Okay. Right. So let's move on. Let's have a bit of fun. Uh, We usually call it the lightning round. Okay. Welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Okay. Last section, home stretch. So this is a fast run round. Pass is really okay. And we're going to try and rattle through as many of these questions in the time we've got left. So I'll start by Kip. What's a favorite book or movie? One of my favorite movies is Memento, actually. I love it because it's, I mean, it's a little violent, but it's just kind of the way the human mind works and how you can tell yourself stories and convince yourself of things. I I thought it was just so fascinating the way they did that. Are you a morning person or an evening person, Kip? Oh, that's a good question. I'm probably more of a morning person, though I tend to be an evening person accidentally because I just don't want to go to sleep. (laughs) Um, Tea or coffee? Yeah, I'm not a coffee guy, so tea. Favorite gadget or piece of technology? I love traditional watches, actually. Purely mechanical watches. I think, yeah, they're not like the most modern tech, but they're beautiful. And the fact that they can do so much in such a little thing and do it just mechanically is is mind-blowing to me. Who's your mentor or have you been most inspired by? Probably one of my ex-bosses at VMware, this guy, uh, Nawaf Batar. Just an awesome person, uh, super, super smart. Also able to very quickly hone in on the essentials of a problem and communicate it and articulate it very concisely. I've always really appreciated that about him. And continues to be a mentor. We continue to stay in touch, even though he left VMware a few years ago. First concert or live performance you ever went to? I think it was Linkin Park and Rammstein back in like, had to be like the early 90s, maybe. I, I don't remember the exact year or maybe the mid 90s. But that was back in my yeah days, the mosh pits. I was like, whatever, 16. And that was cool back then. No, it, I, I'd, argue, I'd argue it's still cool now, by the way, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my body can take that anymore. So, so um, what, where's your favorite one-day getaway location? Well, I live here in San Francisco, and my favorite getaway is up to wine country, either Napa or Sonoma. It's just, you know, it's always a little cooler down here. It's always hotter up there, and I, I love wine. And it's only an hour, hour and a half away. How about your favorite place anywhere in the world to get away to for a prolonged period? If I pick Europe, for instance, Barcelona, Copenhagen, London, those are my three favorite cities in Europe. And luckily, for business reasons, I'm often there in one of those cities. So I'm very fortunate for that. So what piece of career advice do you wish you'd given your younger self? (laughs) I'm someone who is biased for action, likes to move fast. And sometimes I think that can almost be to a fault. If I look back at myself when I uh, was doing the cloud-native stuff, you know, I was really worried for VMware, right? Again, like I thought we had to move so fast. And looking back at it now, I realized that speed is important, but you also have to 
understand that many of these fundamental changes do take time. So you don't want to rush it. You want to take the time to do it right. And so I think sometimes like giving my, giving my younger self uh, that sort of advice is to take it a little slower, think it through a bit more uh, would be something I would benefit from. I'm going to ask this question because I ask everyone this question. Matthew knows what I'm going to ask. If you have to sing karaoke, what song do you sing? Radiohead Creep. <laughs> now, okay. that being said, like I need to be a few beers in before <laughs> that happens. <you> know? <laughs> I can't come in fresh. Yeah, I, have, I have no singing voice. It's going to be awful. But, you know. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and play that guitar riff now. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's screaming at the top of my lungs. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, when was the last time you used cash and what was it for? There's a sandwich shop around the corner. They have amazing sandwiches, but they just take cash. They don't take anything else. So I keep some cash handy when I want to go get an amazing sandwich. If you were an ice cream, what flavor ice cream would you be? I would be some sort of vanilla, but with like a fancy vanilla bean. Maybe like a Madagascar type oh. vanilla bean. Upper class vanilla. Exactly. So it kind of looks normal, but actually, if you know kind of what's going on, you're like, oh, that's uh, a good vanilla. Intense. Hold on. Not just vanilla not with distinction. Flavor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like under the radar a bit. But it's also, but then it has to have sprinkles on it. So that's the other thing. <laughs> Rainbow sprinkles are key. There we go. The unicorn vanilla. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear me. Uh, so um, my last question, uh, what's one thing that we can steal from you as a great idea? One thing you can steal from me? Interesting. I don't know, what, what do people usually say to that one? <laughs> uh, well, actually, the last time we asked it, they said pass. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. So I would say just have some, add some sprinkle to your life, like I, like I try to do, both on my ice cream and in my day-to-day world. Outstanding. Okay, Kit, thank you so, so much for your time today. It's been enlightening and um, I really, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Exceptionally good. Thank you very much indeed. To keep up with the latest work Kit's doing at VMware, please follow him on LinkedIn or Twitter and be sure to check out his incredibly informative blog posts. We'll have links for you in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and you could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.